Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Early in the morning on December 5th, just over a month ago now, Ronald and Carol Wilzak woke up to the foreboding beep, beep, beep of their home smoke alarm. It had been only five years since that couple, now in their early 70s, had finished saving, planning, building, and moving into what they described as their dream home, their retirement home. It was a lakefront, lakefront house in which they had planned to spend the rest of their days. But now, less than three weeks before Christmas 2022, they stood together on the sidewalk in their pajamas, helplessly watching it and all their belongings and memories inside burn to the ground. Yeah, I think one of the questions they're asking at that moment is, now what? Now what? Do we wash our hands of this? Do we walk away or do we try to rebuild? Now what? I wonder if that's at all what God was experiencing in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, obviously not the surprise and the, the helplessness, but the gut-wrenching sadness and disappointment. Genesis 1 and 2 describe the God of the universe building his dream home, so to speak. In the first verse of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and he fashioned a good, 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 very good creation. A world that displayed his power, displayed his goodness, displayed his creativity, displayed his grace. It was pristine. It was perfectly aligning with his flawless and ingenious plan. It was his dream home. And his intention was to live there, to dwell with humanity, the crown jewel of his creation. In fact, in verse 27 of the same chapter, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God desired to enjoy an intimate relationship with them forever. They would worship him unhindered. They would fellowship with him undistracted, and they would experience his love undiluted. Can you even imagine walking with God in the cool of the day? That was his intention. It was a dream home. And when it was finished, everyone moved in. Chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. In verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then comes the beep, beep, beep of Genesis chapter 3. Human desire for independence from God lit the spark. Disobedience fanned the flames and immediately paradise was ablaze. Sin introduced, as we all know, fear and strife and shame and pain and hardship and evil, where previously there was none of that. And in the following chapters, after chapter 3, we see sin spreading uncontrollably. 
showing its insatiable appetite to consume and destroy. In fact, in just the next chapter, chapter 4, it tells of the irreverent worship of Cain and the terrible murder of Abel. Verse 9 of that chapter says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You look over to chapter 5, and it looks like just a monotonous, meaningless list of names and ages, but there's one phrase all through chapter 5 that comes up again and again and again, and it's this, and he died. And Adam died. And Enosh died. And Methuselah died. They all die. And we see here that, again, death was not in the original blueprint here, but sin here is doing what sin does, and tearing down, and destroying, and killing, and separating. And by chapter 6, the house is just engulfed. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And get this, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <sighs> now what? That's the question. What's God going to do here? Now what? It's burned to the ground, right? With his creation destroyed, does God renounce his plan, wash his hands of it, or does he plan to rebuild? And in many ways, the rest of the Bible is God's inspired account of how he chooses the latter option, of how he doesn't abandon his original project to create a world where he can dwell in peace with his creation, but instead, how he sovereignly works to fix what was broken by humanity, to restore what was burned by rebellion, and to rebuild what was torn down by sin. And here's the spoiler, in case you didn't know, he does all of those things, doesn't he? We flip to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, and this is what we read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. What does tabernacle mean? It means dwelling. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. No more, and he died, and she died, and they died. No more. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, God gets his dream home in the end. He will not be thwarted in his plan, even by us and by all of our sin. He will not be thwarted. And over the next number of weeks together, I want to explore how God moves from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. That's what I want to look at together over the next number of weeks. I want us to see God's plan for rebuilding after the fire of sin in Genesis 3. And to do that, what we're going to do, we're going to look at the biblical covenants. Six covenants that God has made with humanity. We're going to look at those together because in those covenants, we're given the backbone of special revelation. 
It's kind of the skeleton on which this Bible hangs. It's the backbone. It also gives us the blueprint for that future restoration and the reason for our hopeful expectation. We look forward to that house, don't we? We, we read Genesis 1 and 2 and we say, that's what I want. I don't want this. I don't want this fixer-upper. I want that. And we know it's coming. And that hopeful expectation is rooted in something, namely the biblical covenants. Now, I should stop and back up a little bit and ask the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? This is one of those words, and there are a number of them, that we hear and use in the church, and sometimes we don't fully know what they mean when we use them. We're just so used to them flying around. A lot of people understand covenant to be kind of synonymous with a promise. Just another word for promise. But as we read through the Bible, that's not really true. There's something more to a covenant. A covenant involves a formality that promises lack. They involve two or more parties solemnly binding themselves to the particular requirements and conditions of an oath. There's an oath, and in that oath, there are conditions, there are requirements. This is what's going to happen. Here are the consequences. And one or two more parties say, yes, we're in. And they swear in to that oath. And because of that, covenants declare intention, and they produce anticipation. As we enter a covenant, we're declaring this is what's going to happen. Right there. You can read about it. All the terms are right there. This is what's going to happen. It also produces anticipation for exactly that to take place. Eleven years ago, I entered a covenant. I entered a covenant swearing an oath to take Patricia to be my wife, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from December 30th, 2011 forward, as long as we both shall live. And in entering into that covenant, I declared my intention— I am going to be with you through thick and thin always until death takes us apart. And at the same time, I created anticipation in her that that would take place. See, it creates an intention, a known intention, and it produces anticipation. That's what covenants do. They declare intention and produce anticipation. And so when God makes a covenant, we should pay attention. When God says, here's what's going to happen, I'm swearing an oath, our ears should perk up and say, I want to know what that is. Because that is declaring his divine intention and producing anticipation in us. Because unlike people, us, who sometimes, not always, sometimes are unfaithful, God is always faithful. Unlike us, who sometimes break covenants, break promises, break contracts, God never does those things. And so the covenants that he makes provide us with a perfect picture of his intentions to rebuild and a sure anticipation of that future home that we long for. Now at this point, some of you, maybe your heads are spinning. You say, I've never even heard of a covenant. I don't know that they were important. I don't know any of this kind of stuff. And you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Well, my prayer is that by the end of this series, that won't be the case. You know, instead, I trust that understanding these covenants, and, and more importantly, how they fit together, will give us a clearer picture of God's self-declared intentions and give us greater anticipation for those intentions inevitably becoming a reality. So, in an effort to be clear, 
let me give you an outline for where we're going in the next number of weeks. Kind of a picture of the map going ahead. I mentioned a moment ago that there are six divine covenants in the Bible, and the plan is to study one per week as we go through, Lord willing. The first is the Noahic covenant. You may have heard of this before. This is the covenant that was made in the presence of Noah and his family, and it's primarily found in Genesis chapter 9, and that's where we'll start this morning in just a moment. After that comes the Abrahamic covenant, which you can probably guess was made with Abraham, right? Oh, you're on track. You know these already. Maybe this is useless. We don't have to go forward. And it's, it spans a few different chapters, but primarily the oath is found in Genesis 15, and that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. Then comes the Mosaic Covenant, which we sometimes call the Law, or the Law of Moses, the Torah, in there. And we'll look at Exodus 19 through 24 there. The Ten Commandments are in there. That's the Mosaic Law that God makes with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. You probably remember the scene. Following the Mosaic Covenant, we'll look at a covenant that's lesser known in Numbers chapter 25 called the Priestly Covenant. This is a covenant that God enters with a man named Phineas, and if you want to look ahead, you can do that, but lesser known, but very, very important. Then finally, there is, not finally, but uh, fifth, there is the Davidic covenant, which if you've been with Oak Ridge for any amount of time and slogged through Matthew along with us for a couple of years, you will have heard of the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant God made with David, that there will be one of his descendants perpetually on that throne, and that is primarily in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then finally, the one we are most familiar with, the one that Phil just reminded us of, and we remember every week at the Lord's Supper, is the New Covenant, which finds its introduction in Jeremiah 31. So here you go, six covenants. We have the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Priestly Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. And they all fit together and map out God's plan of restoring his dream home that was lost by sin. Now, each week, I want to ask three questions of each of those covenants. This is just for clarity's sake. First, I want to ask the question, what is it? It's <laughs> a pretty good place to start, right? What is this covenant? For example, today, what is the Noahic covenant? What are its contents? What was sworn? And more than that, what did the original recipients hear and therefore expect? Okay, that's important to understand. And then we'll move to the second question is, where does it fit? Where does it fit with the other covenants, and where does it fit into the grand storyline of Scripture as a whole? And third, most practically, who cares? Why does it matter? Why does the Noahic covenant matter to us today? Why should we care about each and all of these covenants together? So there we go. That's where we're headed for the next six weeks. Six covenants, three questions for each to help us understand God's plan to finish what he started, and he will finish it, and we will be recipients of it. So we look forward to that. Now, with that as an introduction, I hope you didn't have lunch plans. That was the introduction. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. With that as an introduction, though, turn to Genesis chapter 8 with me. Genesis chapter 8, and we'll answer that first question. What is the Noahic covenant? What is this Noahic covenant? We've already seen at this point that the house is on fire in Genesis. It's not doing so well. But we've also seen that God is not giving up on his project. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, evil everywhere. Every thought, every intention, it's evil, evil, evil. And yet three verses later, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In a sea of wickedness, God sees Noah. God sees Noah. And in a sheer act of grace and mercy, 
God preserves the arsonists, that's us, humanity, he preserves us through this one guy and his family. If you've been in Sunday school at all, seen the flannel graph, you're familiar with Genesis 7 and 8. You've seen all of that. By faith, Noah builds a large boat in the middle of nowhere. It's never rained before. There's no water in sight, but God says build a boat. Noah does it. Animals are sent by God. They board the ship along with Noah and his family. The flood comes, the earth is cleansed, the waters recede, and then look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his, wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Notice that while the water washed away many depraved people, it could not wash away the depravity inside of people. When Noah and his family stepped off that ark, they stepped off as sinners. They stepped off as sinners. Humanity has fallen, still from the house fire. It's still fallen here. It was true before the flood, and it's still true after the flood. Which really makes what God says even more amazing in verse 21. In spite of the incessant inherent rebellion of people against him, God will never again punish the whole world as he did here, even though we deserve it. And even though he would be totally understandable in etch-a-sketching this whole thing away and starting from scratch, that would be totally appropriate, and yet he will never do that again. And to make sure we get that message, God makes a covenant. We need to understand that covenants are not for his sake. Covenants are for our sake. God's yes is yes. His no is no. He cannot speak falsely. So when he says, I'll never flood the world again, that means, guess what? I'll never flood the world again. And yet for our sake, he says, you know what? I'm going to double down. I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to swear an oath. Why? Because humanity doubts. Because humanity disbelieves. Even Noah and his family. After all they had seen, I'm going to send a flood. Really? Build an ark. Really? He does those things. Guess what happens? A flood comes. God has proven himself time and time again to be powerful and voracious to, to Noah, and yet he still swears the covenant. He says, because you're going to doubt. You're going to disbelieve. I'm going to enter into a covenant. This is for us. Now, scan over to chapter 9, verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you 
and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So notice the parties of the covenant here. We have God on one side, and on the other side, everything else, right? Noah and his family, birds, creatures, everything on this side. So it's God and everything else. And then verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is the Noahic covenant? There it is, verse 11. There is the oath. That's its content. And the content really is not cryptic, is it? It is very, very clear, the content of this covenant. Never again will God use water to purge his creation. Never again. And notice, unlike a marriage covenant, which we enter, where both parties come in and swear this oath, here there aren't two parties swearing the oath. It is only God. He says, I myself swear this covenant. So really, in effect, God is taking both sides and entering into it on his own. Why? So no one can blow it. Because he's perfect. He can't break this covenant. So is this covenant legit? Is it held fast? Yes, because God, the perfect one, has entered it on both sides. And as we keep reading in verse 12, it's amazing. God provides this well-known, perpetual reminder of the covenant. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. Notice the exhaustive language there. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. I love this too. He says, when you see the cloud. If you've read past Genesis chapter 9 in the Bible, you know that it gets bad again, doesn't it? I mean, sin is not eradicated at this point. Humanity is going to continue to rebel even to this day. And so there may be a time in the future, or even today, when we look around our world and say, Lord, if I was in charge, I'd bring those floodwaters again. I'd wipe this thing clean. And we may become depressed and burdened by the state of the world. Maybe during the time of the judges, they did as well. And they're sitting out on their porch one day, reading the newspaper, and the clouds roll in. And they say, is it today? Is he going to do it? Should I go get my kids from the backyard? Should we start building a boat? Is today the day? And yet, as they look up at those clouds, what do they see? They don't see the rain start to fall and the floods start to build up. They see the sign of the promise that it will never happen again. What graciousness from God. Verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What is the Noahic covenant? That's our first question. It is simply this. Never again will God destroy all creation with a flood. And that not only declares divine intention, I won't do it, it also produces anticipation. Certainly in Noah, in his family, and in us as well. What do we anticipate? Never again. 
will the world be destroyed with a flood? It's pretty simple, isn't it? I'm willing to bet that very few of us got up this morning wondering if today was the day. You know, today the floodwaters are coming. We didn't think that. Why? Well, some of us don't think about it, but maybe it's because we, we know this promise. We know God has said, I will never again do that, and so we know. Now, the Lord Jesus may come again, and that's a whole different story, but floodwaters will never destroy the earth again. Why? Because God has created that intention infallibly, and we anticipate it coming to pass just as he said. Now, the second question is, how does this covenant fit? How does it fit? How does it contribute to God's reconstruction project, so to speak? Well, to say it plainly, it's the foundation. It's the foundation on top of which every other covenant will eventually sit. It has to sit there. It's the stage on which the drama of God's creation project is going to play out over the centuries. The Noahic covenant is the foundation. And you ask any builder or contractor or homeowner, and you'll hear the same thing. The foundation is pretty important in a structure, isn't it? I mean, that structure could be as, as impressive as anything. It can be technologically advanced. It can be huge. It can be, wow, marking the skyline. And yet, if the foundation is suspect, it is worth nothing. And here, God swears an oath, saying, this foundation, this earth will never pass away. It is secure. It is secure. In fact, he said that at the end of chapter 8, which we read a moment ago. Well, the earth remains. Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. There is a predictable foundation laid by God's grace on top of which he will restore what was lost in the fall. In spite of what a lot of people, alarmists say today, humanity is not going to destroy this earth. We try hard though, don't we? We try hard, but we're not going to do it. It is going to remain until Jesus comes back and restores what was lost. It has been sworn by the God who cannot lie. It has to come to pass. This covenant lays a predictable foundation. No matter how sinful we get after this, and we do get sinful, don't we, as humans? No matter how sinful we get after this, the stage has been set. Restoration is coming. That's how the Noahic covenant fits, and that's why God gave it. But why does the Noahic covenant matter? That's question number three. And, and the most relevant one, the, the, the one that we need probably the most, right? Why does it matter? What difference does this make? Why should we care? And I want to suggest three implications as we close this morning. Three things of which this initial covenant reminds us. It puts in the forefront of our mind as we look down Scripture's story and we look down this restoration project. What are three things that this covenant reminds us of? The first one is that we are sinners. We need to be reminded of that because our world says something very different, doesn't it, at times? We need to be reminded what the Bible says about us, that we are sinners. It's not just that our distant ancestors were sinners. It's not just Noah and those before him. No, no, no. It's everyone after that as well. Noah stepped off the ark with a heart evil from his youth, and he has passed that damning trait to all after him including us. We are sinners. I feel it, if I'm honest. On my more honest days, I, I feel that still creeping around inside of me. And it doesn't matter how many New Year's resolutions I make. It doesn't matter. I want to read the Bible. I want to pray more. I want to attend church. I want to do all of these things. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter the, the mercy I show, the compassion I show, the generosity I show. It doesn't matter my philanthropy. It doesn't matter any of those things because I know in my heart, and the Bible confirms it, that I am still bent away from God and toward my own inclinations, toward myself. That's what it means to be a sinner. We turn inward. Everything turns inward on ourselves and not outward toward God. I feel that in my heart, and maybe some of you do as well. The effects of the original house fire, they still exist in me. A recent survey in the United States reported that 65% of self-identified Christians believe that every person is basically good. That every person is born innocent before a holy God. And if I just assume that Canada is comparable, that means that some here today would probably agree with that. People are generally good. And while I appreciate your optimism, the Bible says something very, very different. In fact, let me read just a couple of passages. In Psalm 14, it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men who see to see if there are, are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if you were to keep track of all our iniquities, oh, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 23, All have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We are sinners. We are the arsonists. We are the rebels against the Most High God, not only in what we do, but in who we are. That's the issue. A lot of people understand that we can outdo our bad stuff and the scales balance out, but God says, no, no, it's much deeper than that. The problem is much deeper. We ourselves are rebels against him. It was true both outside and inside the ark, and it's true today. So stop fighting it. Stop disagreeing with your creator. There is liberty in amening Paul's declaration in Romans 7 when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And there's liberation there because we understand who we really are, and we understand the answer to that question has also been given. See, we can only understand the grace of God, which is the second implication I want to get to in a moment. We can only fully understand how gracious and loving He is when we first accept that we are sinners. We're, and that sin runs deeper than we can even know, but His love runs much higher as well. So the first implication is that understand that we are sinners. In the face of a culture that wants to say, no, no, we're okay, you're okay, the Bible says, no, you're not. But lean into that, there's liberty there. Because the second implication is this, God is gracious. The God we serve, the God we sang to today, the God the missionaries serve, the God we, we serve, the God we have given our lives to, He is so, so gracious. He didn't have to spare Noah. He didn't have to preserve creation. He could have just wiped that away. He didn't have to promise to never do it again. He didn't have to covenant on top of that to make it sure for us, and he didn't have to give us a sign of the covenant either. And so you just say, why does he do all of these things? He does all these things because he is so inexplorably gracious. He is gracious. He was gracious to a sinner like Noah, 
carrying him through the storm in an ark built by faith. And God's gracious to sinners like us if we would simply climb aboard the ark of Christ. The same thing, the ark of Christ. In him, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1 says. Climb on the ark, it's stockpiled with everything that we need if we would just get aboard. Adoption, justification, protection, preservation, wisdom, power, sustenance, everything. It's stocked. It's a full fridge in there. If we would just get on board by faith. Because we get on the way, same way that, that Noah got on that ark of his deliverance. We get on by trusting that God has spoken and he wants to save us. He is so, so gracious. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever works really hard. No, no, no. My scripture memory is failing me. Whoever, whoever goes to church, no. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ has done it all. We are sinners. Christ was perfect. And he died condemned in our place, every single one of us. As Phil reminded us today, he died, was buried, and rose again triumphant because death had no claim on him because of his perfection. And when we trust in him, when we believe in Jesus, we say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. I'm a sinner. I don't understand a whole lot of what's in here. I don't understand covenants. I don't understand. But I do understand that I'm not perfect. And you are. And one day I'm going to die. And I want to spend eternity in the presence of a good, holy God. I do. I understand that my only way there is to hide in Christ, to climb aboard that ark. I encourage you, if you've never done that before, today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Jesus. Climb on that ark by faith. We are sinners, but God is so gracious. Now finally, one more implication. And this is important, especially for us believers. Because again, the world is coaxing us away from this truth. But here it is. God means what he says. Go figure. God means what he says. We are to trust him. With Noah, God speaks clearly, right? Speaks clearly and expects to be understood and obeyed. Now, some of the things he says, I mean, if I'm in Noah's shoes, I'm saying like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But God is very clear. He expects Noah to understand and to put that into practice to obey him. God says he's going to flood the earth. What does he do? Well, he floods the earth. He says he's going to bring animals to the ark. What does he do? He brings animals to the ark. He says he's going to preserve Noah and his family. What does he do? He preserves them. Not one is lost. God means what he says. And so when God says, I'm never going to flood the earth again, the foundation of my rebuilding project is sure. What should we expect? That he will never again flood the world with water. And other things, when he says that judgment is coming, that there is a place called hell and there's a place called heaven. What should we expect? Does God mean what he says or not? When he says, here's what sexuality is supposed to look like. Here's how I want my church led. Here's what marriage should look like. Here's what repentance is. Here's what justice looks like. Here's how to love one another. When he says all of these things, what does he mean? Can we go back to say, he means what he says. I may not like it. It may offend the culture. It may not even make sense to me, like building an ark in the middle of nowhere. But does he mean what he says? Understanding maybe a mercy we get later. Our job is obedience. God has communicated. He wants to be understood. He's actually pretty good at communicating. He created language after all. He wants to be understood. Our job is to say, I believe you. I don't necessarily understand it, but I believe you. He means what he says. 
And because of that, when he says that all who believe in his son have everlasting life and shall not perish and no one can snatch them from his hand, what does he mean? What can we expect? See, brothers and sisters, this is where we get our assurance of salvation. Some people will say, you should never say, I can be sure I'm going to heaven. Because that's just arrogance. Those people don't know what they're talking about. Do not listen to them. A loving Heavenly Father wants His children to know that they are loved and secured. And our assurance of that not, does not come from looking at myself. Wow, 2022 was a pretty good year for Josiah. You know, killed some sins. I mean, I did some other ones. But all in all, it was an upward trajectory last year. So I think I'm saved. That is dangerous ground and unbiblical ground. That is not where we find our assurance of salvation, by looking at ourselves, our performance, our conviction over sin. How sorry am I for my sin? Well, that will tell me if I'm saved or not, right? No. The main way that we know that we are saved is by looking to a God who cannot lie, who means what he says. And when he says, if you believe in my son, you have everlasting life, whether I believe it or not, whether I feel like I'm owed it or not, guess what I have? Everlasting life, because he said it. If you want assurance of salvation, if you want to be sure that if you close your eyes tonight and open them tomorrow on the other side of eternity, that you'll be with Jesus, look to the one who made the promise. That is what the covenants teach us, that he means what he says. And in a world right now that is reeling from relativistic truth and all of that kind of stuff, even Christians need to be reminded of this, that God does not traffic in subjectivity, in ambiguity. He is clear. We can take what he says to the bank. He means what he says. That is such a comfort to us. We are sinners. God is gracious, and God means what he says. He is faithful, faithful, faithful. The rebuilding is underway, brothers and sisters. It is on route, and we get to share in that because we are in Christ. It is an inevitability that his dream home will be standing once more, and it will be the ultimate home. In the meantime... We are to seek him, we are to know him, we are to love him, we are to serve him, and we are to trust him as sinners before a gracious God who means what he says and wants us to trust him. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.